anyway, good morning. Welcome to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. I'm excited. I don't know if you can see just how wide my smile is. I am so excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, again, I just want to say welcome to, to anybody who's visiting with us for the first time, the regulars, everybody who comes every week, and, and, and especially anybody who's listening to us on our website or podcast. I am, I am thrilled to be here with you this morning. You know, one of the things that I really love about the South Suburban Vineyard Church, and I know that there are other churches like this, it's, you know, we don't have like original thought, I mean, some things, yes, but this isn't an original thought, but we actually believe, it may sound crazy, but we actually believe that you can live the good life. You can live it. You can live it. Jesus said in John 10, 10, he said, I have come so that you might have life. And have it to the full. And we are crazy enough to believe that Jesus actually tells the truth. And we believe it. You know, some people take that verse and say, well, obviously what Jesus meant is, you know, he expects all of us to be rich. That's not what we believe necessarily. But we just believe that, you know, your relationships can actually experience healing and health. Your finances, no matter how much money you have in your pocket, they don't have to be dysfunctional. You don't have to be always catching up. You can have a measure of stability and success in your finances. Your body can be healed. Your relationships can be healed. You can live the good life. Well, we've been saying, I think, all along, but in the last few weeks, we've been putting some language to this, and we say, if you, if, if you want to experience the good life, we need to be able to ask and answer a very short list of questions. And at the top of that list of questions is, who is Jesus really? Who is Jesus really? The good life will never really make sense unless we're able to ask and answer that question. Who is Jesus really? And we took the entire month of March to to kind of go through that. And so I'm not going to talk about that today. But another question that we added to that short list last week is who am I really? Who am I really? Because, honestly, we could talk about Jesus all day long. We can rewrite the Greek manuscripts in beautiful calligraphy. We can, we can be the most amazing Bible scholars. But unless we understand Jesus and who we are, we won't necessarily be able to experience all of the life that God had intended for us. We won't be able to experience all of what God had intended for us. I have the wonderful privilege of continuing our sermon series that we're just simply calling Identity. Identity. We're trying to answer that question, who am I? Who am I? And as a working definition, you know, it may not be the most technical definition, but it's a working definition. We're using the, 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 actually the answer to this question. Who did God hope for when he made me? Who did God hope for? What did God hope for when he made you? In other words, who is the person that God intended you to be all along? Who is that person? That is your real identity. And how many of us know that there are so many things in this world and outside of us, and I would argue even inside of us, that would prevent us from from understanding the clarity and the truth behind those questions and answers? Last week, I thought Gina opened the series with a very powerful sermon about how comparison and constantly comparing ourselves to other people, other situations, constantly looking over the fence, prevents us from being able to answer that question, who am I? Who is the person that God always intended me to be? When we constantly compare ourselves to other people. 
This morning, I would submit to you today that I think that there is another powerful force that would prevent us from understanding who we were always meant to be, and that is the image of who we think we are in our minds. The image of who we have in our minds about ourselves. I've titled today's sermon, Who Do You Think You Are? Who do you think you are? And that isn't an intimidating question, and I'm not poking you in the chest and saying, who do you think you are? But rather, I'm hoping that we can use it as a tool, something to uncover the truth of who we think we are. The, the, the uncover the reality that we see ourselves in. And I, and I want to use that as a tool to be able to compare it to, to what the God actually says about who we are. Who we are. So who do you think you are? Now let me say it right up front that I'm not going to preach a sermon. That let's all try to think of like a really awesome person that we want to be. And then we'll just kind of like really com- com- convince ourselves that we are that person and then voila, we are like an awesome person. I'm not going to preach that sermon today. I don't really believe in that. What I want to do is I want us to ask a very perhaps heart-wrenching, a very scary question. Who do I think that I am? Who is the person that is, that is formed in my mind? Who is the person that I use to make decisions? The, the, the platform by which I organize my life. Who do I think I am? And it can be a very scary question. And I want to I take that and I want to compare it to who God says you actually are. Who God says you actually are. And I think, honestly, today I think it could be life-changing if you're willing to engage in this. I think it's worth your while and it's worth my while. To ask ourselves, this is an introspective question. Don't don't answer this question for your husband or your wife and try to figure out why your mother-in-law is the way she is or some other person or whatever. This is about you asking yourself, who do I think that I am? And I just want to begin. I mean, there's so many things that God tells us about ourselves, but I just want to begin to to search the scriptures and, and, and compare that image of who we think we are to the image of who God says that we are. Do you guys with me this morning? All right. Uh, I would love it if you would follow along with me. Uh, We're going to be searching the scriptures for the answer to that question. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and 2. By the way, if you don't have a Bible and would like to follow along in the Bible, there are some on the edges of the rows. Uh, If you're not near the edge of the row, just kind of like elbow the person next to you and ask, pass down the Bible. But 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1, while you're looking for that, let me, let me just kind of explain a little bit about 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a, is a book written by a guy named Peter, go figure, and he is writing to a group of people who aren't necessarily in the epicenter of Christianity in the first century. And what I mean is the, Jerusalem was kind of like the center of the action. That's where the apostles usually hung out. That's kind of, you know, where they gathered, and that's, that was the center of, of their ministry. And Peter is writing to the people who are kind of on the fringes. They're, they're not necessarily in the epicenter. And so he's, he's teaching them. He's admonishing them. He's guiding them. He's writing actually a very pastoral book. But what I really love about the, the book of 1 Peter is that he's teaching and doing all of those things in the context and using the framework of their identity in Christ. 
And, and I don't know, maybe First maybe Peter would make sense to, if someone read it and, and they just kind of had their picture of their own, uh, who they were. And, but, but I think it, it makes more sense when we understand the, the content of the book, and I don't know, I would argue maybe the whole Bible, when we understand who we are in Christ. So Peter begins the book by reinforcing their identity in Christ. So 1 Peter chapter 1 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words will also be displayed on the screen. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to take a drink of water, and then I'm going to pray. <laughs> kind of in that sequence, or maybe I'll mix it up a little bit. We'll see what happens. So 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people, who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and you have, and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. Let me just pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for what you're doing in this church, God. I, I just get the sense that you're doing some amazing things, God. And I, it's just it's a privilege to be a part of it. It's a privilege to, to just kind of be in the midst of it. Lord God, I ask that you would bless our time this morning. Lord, I know that you have so many things to say to us, God. And I know that I can get in the way. I know that I could screw this up. Lord, I ask that you would get me out of the way. Lord, would you just speak to every single one of us, including me, especially me, Lord. We're exactly what I need to hear and we're exactly in the place that I need to hear it. God, will you bless our time? Will you put power in this message? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, this is a very short passage, and I probably should have read it more slowly to make it sound longer and more interesting. But it's a short passage, but it's so dense, it's so rich. You know, I, I get coaching from Gino on, on, on preaching, and I, I can't, especially this week, it just, it's it been invaluable. And he would, he would tell me, you know, the mark of a rookie preacher is to just preach everything. And I, I wish that I could preach everything that is in this, that is in these two verses, and it's, I just can't. I can't. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to zero in on a phrase that Peter uses that I think could potentially change our lives. If we just grabbed onto this phrase... We could have an incredible change in how we see ourselves. And I, I want to I point out that Peter opens the book by saying we are God's chosen people. We're God's chosen people. This almost seems like a bumper sticker answer. It almost seems trite. It, you know, we're God's chosen people. But I think this, this is so complex and so layered. And it, is, and it can be potentially life-changing if we knew who we are in Christ as God's chosen people. I, I, I'm going to ask the question probably about, I don't know, twenty to 25,000 times today. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And I wonder if at the top of that list or somewhere floating in the top of that description, we say we are God's chosen people. It might be the case that we just don't think of ourselves like that. But today I want us to explore what it might look like if we can say confidently and stand here and say, I am God's chosen people. So I want to begin by exploring the idea that we are gods. We are gods. And for the sake of the people listening to this recording, that is God with an apostrophe S. We are his. We are his possession. We are not, you know, deity floating in the skies. That, no. We are his. We are his. We are his possession. 
You know, I, I know that so much of the answer to the question, who am I, can be answered by asking the question, whose am I? Whose am I? Who or what ultimately pulls the strings in my life? Who or what do I really belong to? Who or what do I give my resources to? My time, my talent, and my treasure. Who really calls the shots in my life? And you better believe that whoever or whatever that is, is having a heck of a lot of influence on who you think you are. Who you think you are. I think if you're willing to be honest with yourself and ask this very tough question, and you ask the question, whose am I, maybe you're shocked. You could be shocked. You might realize the people that you actually belong to are your friends. You belong to their their influence over you. You belong to their judgment over you. You belong to, to what they say and think about you. Whose are you? You might realize that you belong to your job. You might realize that you belong to the success that your job gives and and your job is pulling all the strings in your life. You can't give up the the attachment uh, of of the money that comes in because of your job. And everything about your life, the person that you see yourself as is completely tied to your job. You might realize that you are completely tied and and completely devoted to your family. And that sounds noble. It is. It's a good thing to be devoted to your family, but they control everything that is a part of your life. You go, you will do anything and everything to make them happy. Everything about your life is controlled by your family. You might even be controlled by your church. You might even be consumed and possessed by the influences and the judgment of the people at church. Now this can be a very dysfunctional and honestly it is such a sad and horrible approach to following Jesus. And I hear people talk this way and it is just it's horrible what they've gone through when people like there is a roll call. People do experience a a, a controlling possessiveness when they go to church. And that is horrible. And I hope that you never experience that here at the South Suburban Vineyard. Hope that you never experience that. But you ask yourself, whose am I? Whose am I? And it can be a very sobering reality if we ask ourselves honestly. You know, for those of us who are faithfully married or faithfully engaged in a monogamous relationship, and let me again say faithfully, I think we can understand two words very well. I'm taken. I'm taken. I'm taken. You know, most of us wear a ring to broadcast this, and I don't know if we, I don't know, I I personally don't see my ring as like the symbol of love and the circular name. I don't know. I don't don't know that I fully understand the poetry behind the ring. What I see it is that it's a function to let all the ladies who are just clamoring to get close to me that I'm taken. And I got, I specifically got the extra wide, really shiny ring so that they could just, you know, see it from a distance. But I understand the idea that I'm taken. I'm taken. You know, when I got married, I, I feel deep in my heart that I gave my life to my wife. I gave my preferences to her. I gave my uh, career ambitions to her. I gave my life to my wife. And that's not, a, that's not a, 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 an unbiblical thing. 
The Bible talks about a man would leave his father and mother to what? To just kind of be partners or buddies with his wife so they could cleave. So that they can join together as one person. So they can lay down their lives for each other. And so I feel like I have given my life to my wife. She, among any other person on this wor- in this world, has absolutely pri- absolute priority over my life. She has absolutely priority over my life. We have a, a 10-month-old, and I love my son. But I'll tell you what, I choose my wife every day over him. When it came down to it, and hopefully it never does, I would choose my wife. I love my family and I love my friends. I can't tell you how much I love those folks, but my wife has absolute priority. My wife has absolute priority. And I'll tell you, if Jenny looked me in the eyeballs and said, with sincerity and and, and honesty and not in a manipulative way, but if she said, your job is ruining our marriage, I would quit, like in a heartbeat. Honestly, that's not... I'm not joking. I wouldn't even go in. I would call in and say, I'm sorry, I I quit. I quit. Because I have given my life to my wife. Why? Because I fear her? Because, you know, I fear the consequences of what Jenny might do if I don't say those words? No, it's because I love her. I love her and I've given my life to her. I am hers. I am hers. And I know whether you're married or not, and I know not everybody in the room is married, but I think you can understand what it means to be in a committed relationship. You can be in a committed relationship. I think we can understand these words because that's what God had intended for us all along. It is part of who we are. It is part of our identity. It is part of, it is part of the life that God had always wanted for us. Think about the Ten Commandments. Does we have any Bible scholars in the room? What's the number one commandment? The number one commandment. Moses goes up on a mountain. God gives him a tablet. It's a fairly short list of things to write down. And the number one commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, I want you all to myself. God says, you are mine. I want you. I hope that we can answer the question as we, as we look to God. We say, you know... Who are you in relation to? I'm taken. I'm taken. I'm his. I'm his possession. I'm his possession when the world around us would demand our complete devotion. I think God would always want us to say, because it is inside of us, I'm taken. I'm God's. I'm his. I'm his. I'm off limits. We don't, have, we don't always necessarily carry a wedding ring that, that, that signifies our relationship with God, but we, 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 have, we, we ought to be able to say that deep within us, I'm his. I'm his. So if we ask the question, whose am I, which is very related to who am I, I wonder if you're willing to be honest with yourself, would you really say, I'm God's. I am completely devoted to him. What I love about God is no matter how, much, how we answer that question, no matter how honest we are and how we answer that question, God would still say, you are mine. You are mine. No matter how we answer that question, he would say, you are mine. I love you and there's nothing you could do about it. There's a prophet in the Old Testament named Hosea. Very fascinating story. And God told this prophet to specifically marry a woman that he knew was going to be unfaithful to him. Now, being unfaithful nowadays is horrible. It wrecks people's lives. 
But consider in a, in a, in a community and a time when, when adultery was punishable by death. I mean, this was like a serious, serious crime. And God told Hosea, listen, I want you to marry the woman who is going to cheat on you. Not once, multiple, multiple times. And why? Why would God ever do that? Let's look at Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. She did it again. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. No matter what we do, no matter what we did last night, no matter what we did this week, no matter what your past is, no matter where you've come from, God still loves you. You are his. God says, you are mine. I mean, well, honestly, you ask that question, who do I think I am? What would that do to our self-image if we were able to look ourselves in the mirror and say, I am God's. I am his. I'm his. And there's nothing that I could do to mess that up. I'm his. He's claimed me. He loves me. Do we believe that? Do we believe that in our innermost being? Is that really a part of our identity? That we are God's? That we are his? I ask you, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Does that image include that we are God's? That we are his? That he loves us no matter what? It's worth thinking about that. It's worth thinking about that. So who do you think you are? I think the next thing we absolutely have to know about ourselves is that we are chosen. We are chosen. Honestly, I'm not sure how often those words enter our vocabulary these days, let alone our frame of thought. If you're filling out a job application or a Facebook profile, a Twitter profile or something, uh, you probably write something like, um, you know, I'm just kind of medium build, incredibly handsome. I am a wonderful conversationalist. I, I am intriguing, but I'm kind of stoic and mysterious at the same time. Um, is that your pro- that's, I think that's my... Anyway, whatever, I mean, you fill out something and it probably doesn't include the word, I'm chosen. I'm chosen. I'm God's chosen. What what does that mean? And I can think of a few reasons why we wouldn't say that, but I think one of the biggest reasons why we don't use that term maybe about ourselves is that we, we are in a society that reinforces from the day that we're born that we get to choose. We get to choose. We get to choose. This week, this district uh, uh, elected a replacement congressperson. We, we, we choose our elected officials. At least we think so. <laughs> we, choose, we choose, by and large, our friends. We choose, by and large, who we date. And, you know, there are some exceptions to this, so don't get wrapped up in the exceptions. But we, by and large, we choose most of how our lives go and what is included in our lives. We choose what we wear, what we watch, what we consume. We choose many, many things. We choose that stuff. And I think if we describe to the idea that God chose for us, it kind of takes a little bit of the power out of our hands. And it kind of rubs our sensibilities the wrong way. It's like, what do you mean I didn't choose? I thought it was my choice. 
And God says, no, 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 no. I chose you. I chose you. And if, and if you're like me, and trust me, I do this often. If you're like me, you fall into a trap where you say, all right, God, I'll tell you what. Why don't you put your idea of my identity on the table? I'll put my idea of the identity on the table. We'll just kind of mix it together. We'll kind of maybe switch a few pieces around. And then, and then I'll just choose which one I like best. And at the same time, we acknowledge, I don't know, maybe God has chosen something long ago. But we still, we still might press it to say, I want to choose. I want to choose who I am. I want to choose who I am. And that's what society tells us. You choose who you are and you live that out. And God would say, listen, I chose you. I've already chosen the best possible version of your life. I have chosen the best possible version of who you are. Let me say this and then we'll move on. The sooner we realize that God had always had a plan for who we were meant to be, the better off we will be. The sooner we realize that God has always had a plan for who we were meant to be, the better off we will be, the sooner we will be able to engage in the good life that God had always intended for us. The sooner we get past the hurdle that we kind of have to not choose and let God choose for us, the better off we'll be. So what does it mean that we're God's chosen? It can be kind of a lofty answer that, that doesn't necessarily have any concrete, concrete practicality to it. And so you put it on your Facebook profile. In fact, actually, if you want to pull out your phone and, and update your Facebook status, say, I'm God's chosen person. You have about, I don't know, a few seconds. You could, I give you permission. I give you permission. I'm kind of, you're laughing at me, but I'm kind of serious. So what does it mean to be God's chosen I think, we can, I think we need to answer this in two, two ways. Um, and I'm sure that we could, if we talked a little bit more, we could probably identify more than two ways. But I think that we need to be able to answer this in two ways. And that is we are chosen to be and we're chosen to do. Okay. We're chosen to be and we're chosen to do. Let me first talk about what I mean by we're chosen to be. I think God has chosen us to exist in a general state of being that should never really change. Never really change. What I mean is there are some things that we're just supposed to be that we don't turn on and off. We're just supposed to be these things. We're supposed to be these things. We don't wake up in the morning and realize, well, I'm going to be this today. God had intended us to be a certain way all the time without any sort of on-off switch. Let me, let me give you an example. God had chosen, we are chosen to be in a relationship with God. We're chose, chosen to be in a relationship with God. We're chosen to be close to him, to be responsive to him, to be obedient to him, to be submissive to him, to be submissive to him, to be close to the, uh, uh, to, to be close to the living God. We're chosen to be in a relationship with him chosen to be in a relationship with him what would that do to our self-image if we if we understood that we are always chosen to be in a relationship with the living god the king of kings and the lord of lords let me let me let me just kind of bring this earth to to earth a little bit imagine if the president of the united states whether you agree with his politics or not okay if you don't like the president of the united states pick someone that you really really like person with a lot of influence 
And they said, you know what? Hey, listen, I want you to be in my inner circle. I want you to be really close to me. That, I imagine that would boost our self-image. I imagine that would, we would just kind of be floating, almost like, you know, put the seal of the president on our, our left hand or something and just show it off or whatever. It would, just, it would just infuse itself into us and our identities would be changed if we understood that we are supposed to be in a relationship with that person. I wonder if you ask yourself, who do I think I am? And I say, I am in a relationship with the living God. Do we carry ourselves differently because of that? Does it infuse itself into our identity because of that? The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of this universe, says, I want you to be all the time in a relationship with me. What would that do to us? We're also chosen to be filled with the Spirit. We're supposed to have a special connection with the Spirit of God. We're supposed to be motivated by the Spirit of God, to be directed and and discipled by the Spirit of God. Our, our, Our lives are always meant to have a very strong presence of the Spirit of the living God. We're supposed to be filled with the Spirit of God. We're not supposed to wake up in the morning and decide whether or not today we're going to be filled with the Spirit of God. We're just supposed to be. Be filled with the Spirit of God. What does that do to your self-image? To say that I am filled with the Spirit of God. How do you carry yourself after you come to grips with that? What does that do to the image that you have in your mind? Who do you think you are? Does it at all factor in that you are filled with the Spirit of God? We're supposed to be filled with the Spirit all the time. We're chosen to be the disciples and representatives of Jesus Christ here on this earth. We're just chosen to be that all the time. To be a calming voice in the midst of chaos. To be a ray of hope. To be a servant willing to get on our knees. We're just supposed to be those things. To be loving and responsive to the needs of the people around us, even our enemies. It's just who we are. We're just chosen to be that way. Peter says we're chosen to be holy. He said the Spirit of God has made you holy. In other words, we're chosen to be different. Chosen to be different. Honestly, I'm not sure how we can have a very special relationship with the living God, be filled with the Spirit of God, and and, and be the the hands and feet of Jesus Christ and be anything but extraordinary, to be different. It, it, It just boggles my mind. And honestly, it just makes me very sad that many of us, we just kind of go around life just convinced that we're just ordinary folks. We're just ordinary folks. You know, we don't, we don't raise a ruckus. We don't, you know, stay up late and cause, you know, trouble in the community. We don't, we don't, we don't do all that. We pay our taxes. I mean, we're just, we're just ordinary folks. Consider the idea that you have the Spirit of God in you. How ordinary is that? How ordinary is that? It's ridiculous when you think about it. It boggles my mind that it's just so easy for us. And we, we have this self-image in our minds, this, this thing that our identity is, we're just, I'm just an average Joe, an average Jane. I don't think God intended us to be that way ever. I don't believe in ordinary Christianity. 
I just don't believe in it. How can you be filled with the Spirit of God? How can you carry the seal of Jesus Christ on your life and say you're ordinary? You're not ordinary. It's part of your identity, and that's how it was always meant to be. That is who you are all the time. And we should never decide that, it's, that you know, when it's convenient, we turn it on and we turn it off. We're just always meant to be. We are meant to be special. We are meant to be chosen. We're chosen to be, to be different. Because we're chosen to be different, we are chosen to do things differently. We're chosen to do things differently. You know, when we say God, we're God's chosen people, it means that we're, we're chosen to live life differently. We, our actions ought to be a little bit different than the people around us. I think this is such an important part of our pursuit of God and our pursuit of a relationship with Jesus Christ. As we, as we grasp the idea that because we're supposed to be different, we're supposed to do things differently. Unfortunately, many of us kind of get this backwards. We see our relationship with our God and, and probably our identities in Christ based on what we do instead of how we are supposed to be. Instead of, instead of one direction, we, because, we, because we are something, therefore we do something. We're just so focused on, on, on doing things. We're doing things. And from my perspective, this is, this is a very oppressive, oppressive way to look at following Jesus. We perform all these religious Christian things to do because that's what we think we have to do in order to be good Christians, in order to do what good Christians do. We go to church every week because that's what good Christians do. We drop $20 in the bucket because that's what good Christians do. We mow our neighbor's lawn once a week because, because that's what good Christians do. We do all these religious things. Because that's what good Christians do, and we just do, do, do. And we have no connection that we do because of who we are. We're different. We're different. And because we're different, we do things differently. We do things differently. I think Peter touches on something that is just so critical to our understanding of our identities in Christ. He says at the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, He says, his spirit has made you holy. And listen, you need to write these down if you have a pen. He says, as a result, you obeyed him. As a result, it's because of who you are. That's what prompts the actions of following Jesus. It's because of who you are that engages you in a life of doing things for the kingdom of God. It's because of who you are that pushes you to to be who you're supposed to be in a very practical way. It's because of who you are that you do things differently. Differently. So what might it look like for us to do things differently because of who we are? Because we're honest. Because we want to please God by being honest. You know, we might not lie when everyone else is lying around us. We might not cheat on our taxes. We might not cheat on our spouses or our our relationships because we're honest. That is who we are. It's who we are. Because we're we're fair and we want to respect people because we we are loving toward people and we want to, to be loving. We won't gossip about people. We won't tear people down behind their backs. We won't make an extra effort to try to circumvent people and usurp authority. We won't do those things because we are different. We are different. We, we reach out to the people on the fringes because that's who we are. 
We are meant to always reach people, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to reach the people who are unreached. It's who we are, and so we do those things. And I think the sooner we realize that we, we do the things of the kingdom of God because of who we are, we will be able to live in freedom to do anything and everything that the Lord tells us to do. Otherwise, it becomes a chore. It becomes boring. It saps the life out of us when we're just so oppressed by the rules. And I have to do that? And that's what I have to do? And the, Man, another rule? The preacher told me I have to do that? But what if we look at following Christ because of who we are? Because of who we are. Because of who we are. Now imagine... We take all of what we talked about so far and we do this thing together. Imagine if we take all of this and we do this thing together. If I had asked you, who do you think you are? It's probably likely that your entire answer was completely about you. And it's kind of a loaded question. I ask you to be introspective. Um, but it's, it's, it's probably the case that you just completely think about yourself. You're an identity. We're in a culture that focuses on the individual. On the individual, what the last thing I want to touch on today is that we are a people. We are a people. I think it was God's intention for our lives to, that we were always supposed to be in the context of community. We were always supposed to find out who we are in the context of community. Why? Well, God calls us to be different. God calls us to be different. And different the people who are uh, different together just kind of are able to reinforce each other, to be able to support each other, be able to encourage each other, be able to learn from each other. We're called to be holy and set apart, and we're supposed, to, we're supposed to be drawn to each other. Jesus says, you'll know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. It says there's a community that we're supposed to be drawn to one another. I talk to people who are so convinced that they can handle it on their own. They could just kind of, you know, take it or leave it, the community of God, the kingdom of God, the people of God, ah, whatever. I just do things on my own. I just kind of see how it shakes out. I call those people like lone wolf Christians. They just think like, you know, just, I'm, just, I'm just an individual. I don't need community. And I've noticed three things about people who decide to take that road. One thing is maybe they're surviving, Maybe they're still connected to God, but they're probably not thriving the way that they should be. The way that they should be. They're not experiencing everything that the kingdom of God has to offer because they're not within the context of other believers who love on them and pour into them and would bless them and encourage them and hold them up. And would hold them up. The second thing, there's, there, what I've noticed is that people who just kind of go out and do things on their own is that they slowly deviate from the truth of God. They slowly deviate. Their, their idea of who God is, their idea of who they are, their identity is just everything about the kingdom of God just slowly deviates from the truth that we find in Scripture. They don't want accountability. They don't want people who, to be able to tell them, hey, listen, it, it, it kind of sounds right, but it sounds like you're going off in another direction. People who are just out there on their own, they just create this, this, their own theologies, they create their own doctrines, and they, it, it, it's slowly moving them away from the life that God had always intended for, for them. 
And the third case is, which probably is the most tragic case, is that people who just decide that, that following Jesus is an individual thing, they just completely fall away. Eventually, they don't make it. They just, they just slip away into the darkness. And it's devastating. And it's devastating to see that. And I just say, man, I wish you would have plugged into community. I wish you would have plugged into accountability and seen how your identity, how the life that God had always intended you to live, flourishes and comes alive when we're in the context of community. I think it's very easy easy for us to forget that we are a part of a community. We're a part of a community. We are an incomplete version of the body of Christ. We need each other. You need me, and I need you. That's not arrogance. That's just how God designed it. I can't do what you are supposed to do. You can't do what I'm supposed to do. In fact, I get into a lot of trouble when I try to do what you're supposed to be doing. The life, my life force, just everything about my life is drained when I try to do what other, someone else is supposed to be doing. And you might find yourself in a similar situation. We are meant to be in community. You know, I would even go so far as to say our, our, the full scope of our individual identity cannot be realized unless it is in the context of community. In the context of community. I don't know that we'll ever find out who exactly we are in the complete sense of who we're always supposed to be unless we find ourselves in community, when other people can, can speak into our lives, when other people can bring things out of us, when, other, when we can use our gifts and our talents and the things that God has meant for us in the context of community. I don't know that we can achieve the, the good life that God had intended for us if we decide to just kind of do this on our own. We live in the context of community. We are God's chosen people. We are a people. We are a people. It is part of our individual identity to say, I am God's chosen people. It may not make sense in a grammatical sense, but it makes perfect sense when you're looking at it through the lenses of Scripture. We're meant to be part of a bigger picture, a bigger picture that advances the kingdom of God. Imagine what all of Imagine. I mean... I just, I just dream sometimes. Imagine what we can do as a community of people of God for the kingdom of God if everybody understood who they were in Christ Jesus. I mean, just take a moment and picture that. Just com- imagine a picture that, that you, what your life would do, how it would change if you just understood to your very core who you were in Christ Jesus. Now imagine if you get 50, 100, 1,000 people who are all marching to that, to that drum beat. And that we, we press the kingdom forward together. And that we are so convinced in who we are and our mission and our vision and what we're supposed to do as a community and our identity, even as individuals, but as a community comes together. Imagine what we could do to wreak havoc on the kingdom of darkness. We press the kingdom of God forward. So often, especially within this culture, I said, no, I want to do it my way. I just kind of want to be by myself. Don't tell me what to do. I, I just kind of plug in whenever I want to plug in. And I suppose we can do that. But I don't think we'll ever live the life that God had always intended us to live. 
Imagine what it does to our, to our self-image, that image in our mind. When I ask you, who do you think you are? You say, I'm God's chosen people. I'm part of something big, part of something that's beyond me. We're pressing the kingdom of God forward. I'm part of that. What does that do to the image that you have in your mind? Who do you think you are? So what's the big picture here today? The big picture is God was very particular, very particular when he made you. He made you very special, very individual, with a purpose, a specific plan, a specific individual identity. He made you to do something, to be something. And he says, you're mine. I don't care what you did last week. I don't care what you've done your whole life. You're mine. I choose you. You weren't an accident. I didn't bump on you on the road and say, hi, I'm God. Who are you? He said, you're mine. I've chosen you. I thought about you long ago before you were ever a glimmer in your mother's eye. And I chose you. You're mine. We're chosen for a purpose. We're chosen for something. We're chosen to just be in a relationship with God all the time. We're chosen to be filled with the Spirit. We're chosen to be the hands and feet of Jesus all the time. We're chosen to be something. Because of that, we're chosen to do some things. We're chosen to do some things. A natural response to being something is to doing something. So we're we're chosen to do those things. And again, I would just imagine... Imagine I get tingles down my back when, I, when we can all do that together. Together. When our lives are changed by the impact of knowing who we are in Christ. If we did that together, man, I just get goosebumps thinking about it. We are God's chosen people. Worship team, you can come up. You know, I realize that one of, the, one of the struggles that we have in this life is that we are constantly fighting against who we are. We're in a society that pushes back over and over and would demand that they know what's best. We create this image of ourselves in our mind of who we think we are based on so many variables, so many things. And I would ask us again the question, who do you think you are? What is that image that you see in your mind when you close your eyes and you say, who am I? Does it have anything to do with who God says you are? Are you really motivated by who God says that you are? Listen, this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is the beginning of a number of weeks that we talk about who you are in Christ. I ask us today to be introspective, to do some hard work, to dig up who we think we are and compare it to the truth in God's word. And I would challenge you today to continue that because God has an amazing life for you. God has chosen an amazing identity for you. And you can really only ever get to that point if you understand who Jesus is and who he meant you to be all along. Let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, God. I thank you that you call us out, that we are special, that we're not haphazardly made, that we're not a fluke. We're not a fluke. We're not, we didn't come here by accident. 
This isn't just, you know, us wandering and floating in a universe of, uh, of just uncertainty. Lord, you had a specific plan for us all along, an identity for us all along. And Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to love us no matter what. I thank you that, that even here today, as we fight against the image of who we think we are in our minds, and we compare it to the truth of your word, Lord, I thank you that you just love us through this process. There is no condemnation coming from you, Lord. And Lord, I just ask that you would bind the mouth of the enemy, any lie that would come from the enemy that would say, no, that's not true. God, will you speak over the mouth of anybody else? God, will you bless us? Will you protect our hearts? Will you grow us? Will you continue to shape us into the person that you always meant us to be? Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, melt away the barriers that we have that will prevent us from seeing who we really are. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord. Amen.